What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. All right. Welcome back, Nightmare Success listeners. I've got a treat for you guys today. So Seth Ferranta and I, uh, we uh, met up, actually Michael Henderson, who's actually on this show about, I don't know, three or four podcasts ago. He texted me, he said, man, I ran into this Seth, man, you got to get a hold of him. This guy, this guy is, he said, he's lit. He's got all kinds of stories. So let me give you a little background of Seth, because I, I pulled this off of, of, uh, what he's, I mean, you, you look up Seth Ferrante on, on uh, Google, you'll get a lot, but I'm going to give you just a taste of all this. When writer-director Seth Ferrante received a 25-year sentence, marijuana, LSD conviction, he was faking his suicide, or faked his suicide, landing him on the U.S. Marshals' top 15 most wanted list. He thought his life was over. As a first-time nonviolent offender, the lengthy sentence attracted media attention from the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, Washington Times, and others. As a drug-dealing teen, Ferrante sold LSD and marijuana at 15 East Coast colleges, crisscrossing across five states, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, West Virginia, and Maryland. A wannabe rock star and Hunter, and Hunter S. Thompson-style outlaw, whose heroes were Henry Rollins, Axl Rose, and Jim Morrison. Seth decided to rise above it all, above his past, and focus on his future. He began building a writing and journalism career from inside the belly of the beast. With unlimited access to criminals and their stories, Ferranti started crafting raw portrayals of prison life and crack area gangsters. Discovering a passion and talent for writing, Ferrante also studied the trade, earning an associate's, a bachelor's, and a master's degree while in prison. He took it one step further and established his brand, Guerrilla Convict, from prison. Ferrante became a true crime publisher and built a website documenting stories that the mainstream media was not willing to share. These stories reside in his books, and I think he wrote 22 books while he was in prison. Some of them were prison stories, Supreme Team, Street Legends, among others. He has over 500 blog entries written by him and other prisoners, along with hundreds if not thousands of pieces of Ferrante wrote for other publications and websites. He became the most prolific prison writer of the War on Drugs era. In February 2015, after serving 21 years, he was released from prison uh, to seek and, and go into basically as a director and writer in the movies. And for any of those who watched uh, that was either on the Stars Network or became a top 10 hit on Netflix was uh, White Boy. And then later, White Boy Rick, which uh, Matthew McConaughey played. Uh, he's appeared on Fox News Inside Edition. Uh, News Nation is a subject matter expert and is currently directing several documentary projects. Nightlife, which I saw the teaser to, which is very cool looking, is actually here in St. Louis. 
where uh, they're actually walking the streets and it's all it's it's if if this all comes out it's going to catch everybody's attention. Seth Ferrante. Wow. Oh, wow. Wow, man. Welcome. Thank you, man. Appreciate you having me here. So, Seth, all this is I mean, when I when, when we had lunch and I I pulled you up and thought, "Man, you have been on a you have been on a ride and I think the cool thing about what you've done is for a lot of people, 25 years in prison, um, and we're going to unpack all this, but I mean, 25 years in prison, I, I was sentenced to five years and served three, and, and that was long enough for me. I, I, how you decided to make what you made in prison, I, I really want to get into that. But before we do that, I want to go back because I know that you were one of these kids because uh, you're originally from California, but one of these kids that uh, was kind of an army brat that moved around. Can you explain a little bit about your early life growing up? Yeah, my, my dad was in the Navy, so, um, you know, we bounced around East Coast, you know, West Coast. Uh, I lived in Germany for a couple years. I lived in uh, London, England for three years as, as a teenager. So I, I was kind of, you know, like a typical military brat. I, I was always kind of on the move um and i think this upbringing kind of um you know set the tone you know for my whole life because always being the new kid you know i was always looking for that acceptance it was like as soon as i found like a group of friends and i felt comfortable we had to move again so yeah. you know as as a kid growing up you know especially as a young kid and then as a teenager you know that that can be unsettling because you know I, w- I was just always looking for something you know like i always had this you know hole you know, in, in my life that finally, um, when I was 13, you know, I, I started experimenting with, with cannabis and, and psychedelics and, um, you know, this, this kind of filled that hole, you know, and, and, and back then in the eighties, you know, this, this is like, you know, the mid eighties, 84, 85, you know, you know, right before the war on drugs yeah. and, you know, this is your, Just say no. this is your brain on drugs yeah. and, you know, there was this big kind of outcry and, and, and marijuana and LSD were kind of looked upon the same as heroin and just from um from experimenting with these drugs and the way they made me feel you know i i really disagreed you know with kind of the outlook because i i saw this stuff i thought it was therapeutical i thought it was spiritual Mm -hmm. i thought it was medicinal you know everything that people are saying about you know especially cannabis and and some psychedelics now but i felt then because it kind of you're kind of ahead of your time on that yeah it kind of it kind of it kind of leveled me out yeah you know, it kind of filled this hole. I mean, and obviously, you know, I'm an older man now, so looking back, I, I can say this hole, it was it was basically like insecurity. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, I, I'm curious, Seth, so when you got into that, uh, was it easy to get into that? I mean, were you around a group of kids that you hung out with that that's kind of what you guys were doing and you got into that group? Is that how that worked? Yeah, I really got into it. Um, I got kind of got into the Grateful Dead scene. Yeah. So that was kind of my entrance you know, into that world. And, you know, it's funny. And I, and I got a lot of friends that are like hardcore deadheads now to this day. And um, <laughs> it doesn't I, go away, does it? Yeah. But, but I always tell them, I always tell them like, I was never like, you know, I was never there for the music. I was always there for like kind of the, the counterculture. Yeah. You know, that's what they called it back then. They called it the counterculture. counterculture. I right. mean, I guess now it's the, it's the mainstream. Yeah. But back then they called it. So I was there for the scene, you know, and, and I gravitated, you know, to those people. And that's how really I, I got all those connections. And um, then, 
Yeah, I was basically like, you know, have drugs, will travel. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was like a freelancer. You know, I just had good connections through through the uh, Grateful Dead community. I could get stuff sent wherever. Yeah, you know, and and I would just go to the colleges and, and sell it. So when you got into the college scene, because I think it's interesting. I I mean, you've you were into the, some of the big colleges on the East Coast. Um, did you? Was it because you wouldn't? How old would you have been at the time you were doing that? Oh man, I, I was I was pretty much I was pretty heavy in the game by like fifteen, sixteen. See, I think that's really crazy because you know be, to be able to do what you were doing, you had to first find somebody to supply, you had to find you know the distribution, getting. Uh, I don't know if you worked by yourself or you had other people you're working with, but you you more or less put together a company. Now that's what I've always thought was interesting about the people I was with uh, when I was at Leavenworth. The people who were in the the drug business. Um, was very similar to the business that that I had tried to grow as a national company, and that was you know how, okay you've got a product how do you get the product out you got to distribute how do you get the distri- distribution you've got to have the sales piece uh, you've got to have incentives and commissions and all those things that went with that. I found that a lot of the guys that were that I was locked up with they they had all that they were just doing it from the drug side, but you were doing it at fifteen or sixteen years old. So did your parents have any idea that you were this guy? I mean, they had their suspicions, but, you know, um, really by... I mean, because Seth, you would have been making money, too. I mean, your parents seen, okay, Seth's got... He's not asking us for anything. Yeah, but really by the time I was like 16, 17, I I, I had like my own place. Okay. I I would, you know, officially I was living at home and I had a room at home. But, you know, I, I was never there. You know, I, I had, like, a stash. I had places. And I was always the type of kid, too, ever th- since I was 13. Like, when I was 13, I was dating chicks that were, like, you know, 15, 16, 17. Yeah. By the time I was 15, 16, 17, I was dating chicks that were 18, 19, 20. You were playing older. You know, so I was always – all my friends were older. I hung out with older people. Yeah. You know, um, I, w- I was tall. You know, I got – you know, f- I guess I had facial hair pretty early on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I kind of looked older and I, I played that role and I, I was kind of acted older than I was. I was like that kid that couldn't wait to grow up. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I, I was doing all types of stuff, you know, that, uh, you know, really people older than me weren't even doing, you know, just cause I, I was kind of, I was kind of bold, you know, I, I was kind of reckless and, um, really I was just like, you know, I'm going to do what I want. This is the life I want to live. I, I kind of saw myself as like this counterculture outlaw that was kind of bringing these substances that I called righteous mm-hmm. drugs, you know, to the people, you know, to, to my peers, to people in colleges. And it, all of this was kind of built, you know, off that kind of, uh, grateful dead outlaw, you know, kind, kind of ethos that mm-hmm. was kind of out there, you know, and I, I kind of just like rolled with it and, and became, you know, like I say, I, I had long hair and, but I wasn't like the, you know, quintessential hippie or anything, but you know, I had long hair, but then the more successful I got in the drug business, I actually cut my hair short. Cause, and I would dress like, you know, really, really preppy mm-hmm. cause I wanted to blend in with all Fit the other the college scene. kids. Yeah. So, you know, it was, it was kind of like, uh, you know, I, I adapted really easily. So Seth, did you go to college or were you just infiltrated into all these colleges? I mean, I, I did, I did. I went to, um, you know, a couple community colleges, yeah. but I don't know, just just like high school. Like, I didn't even graduate high school. I got a GED. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the whole thing was that because, you know, like I said, I, I had always had places, like, before I was 18. And, you know, my, my parents had this thing, like, they would try to put the hammer down sometimes, and they'd be like, you know, you can't move out 
you know, until you're 18. And though finally, when I did turn 18 in January 1989, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to move out officially, even though I was already moved out, basically. Yeah. But officially, I'm moving out, you know, and then they were like, well, you can't move out till you graduate. You know, that was my senior year. So what I did, I went out and I got a GED the next weekend. You know, and, and that was crazy, too, because, like, the GED test, they said it's supposed to take, like, five or six hours. I basically did the test in two hours. Like, when I handed the lady See, my, that's one thing you haven't had a problem with. You were very smart, and how you've been able to apply that is, is fascinating to me. So you get your GED. Then where do you go? Um, I actually, I went down to Florida, and I, I, I moved down there, you know, under the pretense of going to school. But I, I don't know. I like college for the party scene, but like going to class, I mean, it was just kind of boring. I, yeah. I didn't really see how it would help me because, I mean, at that time, you know, I was probably making like twenty, thirty thousand a month. That's you know, crazy cash. being at that age. Yeah, so I was just like, you know, and, and at that time, you're talking late '80s. I mean, that was like people's salaries for the whole year. Sure. So you know, I, I would go to college and. Uh, you know, but it was always a pretense. I, I never applied Did you myself. feel like you had, like, an entourage of people that were trying to feed off of that? Of, of oh, that? no, always, yeah. No, I, I had people that, that I fed, basically. You know, a lot of people, you know, like, they would they would sell for me or, you know, I most of the people I got, they were, like, friends. Like, I recruited people into the drug business, yeah. you know, like, high school friends, you mm -hmm. know, you know, relatives, you know, people like that, people I knew in the West Coast and the East Coast. Yeah, yeah I kind of recruited them in. And I kind of told them, boom, you're doing this. And then I would use them to insulate myself, mm -hmm. you know, so so I didn't have to deal. Because at first when I was younger, like 13, you know, 14, 15, 16 even, I was dealing with a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know. And then eventually I got where I would insulate myself and only maybe like five people or ten people had access to me because mm -hmm. I, was, I was bringing in so much uh, inventory. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So this thing continues to grow. And when do you start – or I guess – the real question is, is, did you know that anything was coming down on you? No, I didn't. I really had no idea. You know, I, the, the war on drugs, I mean, in the late 80s in the suburbs, I mean, the war on drugs had just begun, so it wasn't something that we talked about. Mm -hmm. You know, we knew, you know, we read the headlines or we saw the news things about, you know, the crack era stuff in the inner cities, you know, because it was getting really violent, mm -hmm. you know, and it seemed like, you know, to me that it was kind of focused you know, in there and, you know, they were basically, you know, targeting, you know, African American people, which is, you know, everybody can see now. But even back then, it, it kind of looked at that, looked like that to me. So I thought, you know, because of my upbringing and where I was and the color of my skin, I thought I was basically like untouchable. Invisible. Yeah. You know, and so, um, and I, I knew a lot of older guys that, you know, from the Grateful Dead community mm -hmm. and older guys like weed dealers, like guys that have, you know, sold weed and even some even cocaine and like moved into legitimate business and had like these businesses, dudes that were like, you know, 10 years my senior. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of thought that's how you did it. You know, you made this illegal money and then you invested it into legit businesses. Yeah. So that was kind of my plan. But, you know, I also had a goal. My goal, you know, by the time I was 17, I had a goal. My goal was to become a cash millionaire. Okay. You know, I never uh, I never got near that goal. I didn't, you know, like I say, the most money I probably had was a, a couple hundred thousand at one time, and it probably wasn't even all my money. <laughs> you know, was, I, I owed it because you know, I got a lot fronted. But, you know, so I never came close to that goal. But It's good to have goals, though. You know, if, Keeps if, you motivated. Yeah, if I would have been out there, you know, and, you know, I got busted real young, you know, at 20, so... You know, if I would have been out there to the age of 25, if I would have had, you know, I had a real short run you yeah. know, where I was, my actual run where I was actually making like 20, 30,000 a month, it was probably only like, you know, nine months. Yeah. 
you know, before then it was just building up to that point to get to that point, you know, learning, you know, establishing connections. Connects. So, you know, finally like 1920, I got to that point where I was like, man, I'm, I'm on, but it only lasted nine months and you know, and then it and you were only came, 20 years old. That's what's crazy. It all came toppling down. So can you, can you walk me through? Cause you, you had a couple of different things that happened. You get tagged, but then you become a fugitive. Walk us into that whole thing. It sounds yeah, like so, a movie, by the way. I, that should also be scripted out by you on how all this happened. But that sounds like something you watch on yeah, TV. Yeah, so what, what happened was, um, in my case, this um, I, I wasn't even in the area, you know, but I, I, was, I was still sitting. And it was like, uh, you know, the summer of 91. And if anybody remembers back then, especially on the East Coast, like in the late 80s, early 90s, like it, the weed, it would get real dry because – you know, we were getting the good bud from Humboldt County, you know, the Emerald yeah. Triangle. Yeah. But that was like only the fall. By December, January, famous. that yeah. stuff would usually be gone. Mm -hmm. So the rest of the year, you know, I, I was hawking like, uh, you know, I was selling like brickweed. You know, like people hear brickweed today, like they have no idea. Like the weed that we used to get in smoke compared to the quality that we get today in this day and age. So the rest of the year, you know, I was basically hawking brickweed. And even in the summertime, like it would get dry. There would be like no weed. Right. So, um. And I was always gearing up for the fall because I, I had the contacts in, in, in the Humboldt County. Mm -hmm. And I also had the hum contacts in Kentucky where, you know, a lot of people grow weed in south, south southeastern Kentucky. And I think you're doing a documentary on Humboldt County yeah, yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, I'm doing a, a doc right. series. But, um, you know, so I was always gearing up for the fall. I was trying to get my money up. So actually when this investigation started, I was actually in Hawaii for three months. Because mm. I would do that too. Like I was the type of dude like, just take off. I would do a load, you know, I would work, I would finish the load, you know, I would, I'd be flush with money and, and I'd take off, you know, disappear for three months. Mm -hmm. So um, I was actually in Kona and uh, I was in Hilo on the big island. You know, I, I stayed out there for three months. And while I was there, I was still, you know, funneling, uh, you know, LSD into the area. And, um, you know, looking back, I, I did, I made a big mistake because all my friends, that were in all these 15 colleges in five states, they were all back in Northern Virginia. And these were all people that I kind of, you know, pushed into, you know, selling drugs, you know, some more than others, you know, but a lot of them I recruited in mm -hmm. and they would move my stuff and they were all back and we just flooded, saturated the area with LSD. And the, the area was so saturated. It was like, you know, um, this shows you how saturated it was is like, you know, at first, when I first started, maybe it might be 8, 10 to hit. And then, you know, when I got going, it went down to 5 a hit. And then in the summer of 91, when it was really dry and I, all my friends were back and we were all gearing up for the fall, you know, because we made a lot of money in the fall off a of harvest with the weed. You know, I flooded the area with LSD and uh, it dropped down to like $2 a hit because mm. there was so much LSD. So all my friends were back there selling LSD, competing against each other, you know, and there was actually this big field party out in Clifton. Clifton's in Fairfax County in Northern Virginia, mm -hmm. but it's like, it's like an area where back then they had all the million dollar houses, mm -hmm. you know, like four High or five acre area. lots. Yeah. And P you know, when people's parents, you know, we did the classic suburban thing when people's parents would you know go out of town, mm -hmm. you know, the kids would have parties. So there was this big field party, you know, they brought in skateboard ramps, you know, they brought in stages for the bands and um, there was just a ton of LSD. You know, eventually the cops got called the cops came to this party and there was like a young kid, like 15 years old and he was tripping on LSD and, and he was like running through the woods naked or something. 
you know, one of the Fairfax County police officers actually chased him, tackled him. Somehow, you know, the kid started freaking out. He grabbed the cop's gun and he shot the car cop in the arm. Wow. Okay. So that triggered the whole investigation, you know, which, um, you know, I can see, you know, as, you know, as time has gone on, I, I can see how from the Fairfax County Police Department, yeah, one of their own got shot. Sure. You know, it was just like, you know, basically, you know, flesh wound or whatever, but still he got shot. So they didn't like that. But, um, you know, to me, that triggered, like, you know, what I see in my mind, it was like an LSD witch hunt. Mm -hmm. So then they just started going crazy. You know, the, they, they, the Fairfax County narcotics, you know, they brought in the DEA. And, and it was all timing. Like, everything in life is timing. Mm -hmm. So this is 91. So this is also the time, you know, these, these federal mandatory minimums, you know, these war on drug laws have, have been on the books like three years at this point. But... You know, the prosecutors, especially in Northern Virginia and, and Maryland, they're getting a lot of heat because these laws are only being applied, you know, to basically like African-Americans from D.C., mm -hmm. you know, for crack cases, mm -hmm. you know. So they're getting heat politically. So then, you know, the DEA starts this new initiative, like, you know, we're going to go out to the suburbs, we're mm -hmm. going to bust white drug dealers, you know. And um, I kind of fell on that. I was in that first wave you know, when the DEA went out to the suburbs. aggressive. Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, you know, just wrong person, wrong place, wrong time, you know, and, um, and I had flooded the area with LSD. This cop got shot. So they started an investigation and, um, like this was in June and then by August, you know, I, I got arrested and they indicted me. Okay. So you get indicted, you get arrested. How do you, and when do you become a fugitive? Well, yeah, shortly thereafter. So, um, actually, because I mean, I think it's an interesting question too, Seth. Because you know, a lot of people you knew you were looking at a lot of time. This this is when they were getting aggressive. Uh, you know, the nineties, eighties, and nineties was crazy time that they would give for drugs. Uh, but it makes it's kind of an interesting question. If you know you're looking at twenty five, fifty years, what would you do? You know, do you stay? Yeah. You sit around and and wait, or do you take off and, and see if they can find you? Because the alternative is you're going to be spending a lot of time in prison. So I think it's it's interesting to think about what would you do when, if you were in your shoes? Because you knew you were caught. Yeah, yeah. The back end of it was is how much do I get out of this? Yeah, well, what I what I did, right, because anytime, especially back then when you, when you get caught by the feds, right, all your lawyers are doing is, is they want you to plead. Yep. You know, they're pushing you to cooperate. You know, because they're saying that's the only way, you know, if you go to trial, you're going to get hit, you know, or whatever. So, well, they did what they do is they stack up all those years on you and say, you know, really, if you go, you know, we could get past, you know, 10 of these, but, you know, you get one of them, that's 20 years. And, you know, you look at those crazy statistics of the people who get indicted, 97% plea. Yeah. That's in the United States of America. So it's, there's, you're right. When when the defense criminal attorneys get involved in them, they're just negotiators. Yeah, they they, they don't want to go to trial. You know, because mm -hmm. I, I think even like the, the feds, neither side wants to go to yeah. trial. The feds at that time, I mean, they, they had like crazy. They had like a ninety nine percent conviction rate yeah. or something like yeah. that. So, and and like most of the cases do plea. So actually, what I did, you know, I, I had no intentions of cooperating. You know, I, I was going to flee from the outset. I was like, I'm not doing no, this time. I had a little bit of money, mm -hmm. you know. So I told my lawyer, I said, look, I said, I'll sign a plea deal and I'll say I'm going to cooperate, mm -hmm. right? But as soon as I signed the plea deal, 
you know, like I took off, you know, because they gave me a... You got a bonded. Yeah, I got personal yeah. reconnaissance. Sure. You know, because they thought I was going to help them. Mm -hmm. You know, like they they were they thought I was going to bring in people from California and set people up, yeah. and like I was going to put all these feathers in their cap yeah. and and make their career. Sure, but you know, so basically I tricked them. I took off. You know, and before Do you have an I took idea off, where you were going, Seth? Like, I mean, because yeah, that's yeah, kind of yeah. like you know, you. No, I knew I was going back to California. I had a lot of contacts. Right. I had family in California, so I was going back to California. But um, you know, then I did something else to throw them off my trail. I faked my suicide because mm -hmm. my idea was like, you know, if Seth Ferranti is dead, you know, after seven years, if they don't find a body, I can be declared legally dead. And once I'm declared legally dead, then there is no case. The case is gone because mm -hmm. I'm dead. So um, I, I developed this ruse. You know, I, I remember when I was a teenager in Northern Virginia, um, I would always read like the newspapers. I was a big sports fan mm -hmm. and, you know, right in front of the sports section, the Washington Post was a Metro section. So sometimes I would catch like the Metro headlines as I was going to the sports section. And there was this area called Great Falls on the Potomac River, a national park in Northern Virginia, where a lot of people would commit suicide. I would always see in the Metro section, like, you know, so-and-so commit suicide. Yeah, because they would jump in the water. And what it is, it's like class five rapids, mm. you know, but then so it takes you away. Yeah. And then, but it's also like a lot of rocks. So you can't swim in class five rapids and it's like rocks. So, you know, if you don't drown, you get smashed against the rocks and you die. So it was pretty much a That's full, like a terrible way to yeah, go. <laughs> well, pretty much like a foolproof way though, you yeah, know, yeah. To, to commit suicide. So I had known this over the years. So when I got in this situation, that kind of popped into my head and I was like, you know, how can I throw these dudes off my trail? You know, how can I really, really not only disappear, but really disappear, mm -hmm. you know, just make Seth Ferrante like dead obsolete. And so I came up with this plan. Um, I went there, like I staged it, you know, I made it seem like I went in the water mm -hmm. and, um, you know, then I took off and I went to California and I was in California. I was staying in LA with some friends and, you know, back then they had like the big newsstands on every corner yeah. with all the big national papers, right? Because <laughs> right. you wouldn't have the internet and stuff. So I would go to the news the newsstand every day and I would buy the Washington Post. And like first, you know, it was cool because it was like, you know, Fairfax, uh, Fairfax, LSD, Kingpin, you know, commit suicide. And I was like, yeah. I was like, So I they covered it. it. Yeah, I was like, I got him. Mm -hmm. I was like, I got him. You know, it was in print. Mm -hmm. You know, but then... um. After two weeks, you know, I, I went and um, I, I got the Met, the Washington Post, and I went to the Metro, and I saw the headline, and, like, you know, uh, my heart just sank because it said, prosecutors declare, you know, LSD, Fairfax County LSD kingpin suicide a hoax. Oh, wow. Right? So so I started reading it, man. I was like, I was like man, where did I mess up? What did mm -hmm. I do wrong? I thought I had him. Yeah. Because you know, I was only 20, but I thought, like, I'm this super smart. Mm -hmm. Really smart. You know, outlaw, genius, criminal mastermind <laughs> or whatever. And um, so I started reading it, and it says the park rangers, they dragged the river for two weeks. Wow. And they didn't find a body because where I messed up, was I, I staged my suicide on the wrong side of the dam, you know, so the area where I did it, you know, because they got all the bridges, you know, going into D.C., so they calm the water down, you know, before it goes out to the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. So I did it on the wrong side of the dam, so they dragged the river. They didn't find a body. They always found bodies mm -hmm. in this part where I did it. So, you know, there goes uh, so there's no know, body. me being super smart. I thought I was so smart, and I committed my suicide on the wrong side of the dam <laughs> or faked my suicide. Just, just, one, just one detail. So once that happened, then I was de declared a fugitive. Yeah. And not only was I declared a, a fugitive, but, you know, because I had basically, uh, you know, tricked them, mm -hmm. 
you know, like they thought I was going to cooperate and mm. then they didn't, they weren't happy know, with they you. They didn't get any, they were not happy with me. Yeah. So then, you know, cause like I say, I didn't carry guns. I wasn't violent. I didn't have a criminal organization. I wasn't in the mafia. I wasn't in a gang. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't in any type of organization. I was just basically a freelancer, you know, that fronted stuff to people under me. I, I would, they didn't even cash buyers. I fronted p to people, colleges and mm -hmm. came back and collected the money. So, um, and in my mind, I was like this really in the big scheme of things, a little small, mm -hmm. you know, drug dealer, you know, even selling, though they called you a kingpin. Yeah. Selling what I thought were righteous drugs Yeah, and, um, you know, being marijuana, LSD, mushrooms, stuff like that. But, um, for some ungodly reason, I guess because I pissed them off or I made them look bad or I was like the black mark on their record. Like they were like, how did this young kid like outsmart the feds? Mm -hmm. You know, they, they pushed and they did all the paperwork and made me a top 15 U.S. Marshals list, which I didn't even know that until I was finally caught. Mm. But I was a fugitive from uh, 91 to 93. I, w I was in California first. But um, after six months, I, I ran out of money. And I, I didn't have a lot of money, but, but you know, I had a substantial amount of money um, for that time. And um, but Was, I was it hard to stay under... Like, uh, I mean, did you feel like you couldn't go anywhere or do anything? Well, uh, I, had, you I had a whole bunch of IDs, man. I got all my IDs for, like, real D DMV. So, um, you know, when I was a fugitive, right before I became a fugitive, I read all these books. You know, back then they had these companies like Pallet and Press, Loom Panics, that, you know, they do subversive books. Yeah. Like, the most famous being probably, like, the Anarchist Cookbook. Yeah. But, you know, they had all these ID books, like Identity Theft, uh, Paper Tripping, Reborn in the USA. Yeah. So I had read all these books, and they told you how to get... How exactly how to, to do it. How to get ID from legitimate sources. So what I would do, I would find an obituary. I would comb the obituaries. I would go, like, on the microfilm mm -hmm. in, in, like, big libraries, mm -hmm. you know, and, I, and I, would I would find an obituary, and it would be someone that, you know, I, I was looking for a candidate that was born in one state and died in one state under the age of five. Okay. Once I found that out, I had all the information I needed for the death certificate. You know, just need the person's name, place of death, uh, you know, date of death. Mm -hmm. So then I would write, you know, and I had like a mailbox, et cetera, or, or ones that you can, you know, use like a suite number, an apartment number. Mm -hmm. And I would write and I would say like, I'm the person's aunt, I'm their uncle, you know, and I would send the $10, send me the birth certificate. So once I got, or the death certificate. So once I got the death certificate and the obituary, I had all the information I needed to order the birth certificate, which you need a person's name, you know, place of birth, you know, date of birth, mm -hmm. mother's maiden name, father's name. And that was all on there. Yeah. So from those two, you know, from the death and the obituary, I, got, I would have all that information. So then I would write and get the birth certificate. And as long as it was someone who died in one state and was born in another, they don't cross, even to this day, they don't cross Isn't reference. Isn't that crazy yeah. to, think, to think that, Seth, that they don't cross reference that? They do if you're born in the same county or the same state. Because yeah. I tried some in the same state. And yeah. you, you would but get, if you go outside yeah, and cross state lines. You would get lines. the birth certificate, it would, mark, it would be marked deceased. But if you know born in one state, died in another, you know, and I learned all this by reading the books. And then yeah. once I had the birth certificate, I was home free because you can verify a social security number really easy. So I actually had this book called uh, Understanding U.S. Identifying Documents. Mm -hmm. And it broke down how social security numbers, you know, so, so with social security numbers, the first three numbers, that goes by state. Okay. So, you know, each state is. Has is their own concerned. numbers. Yeah, those three. But it might be like, you know, it could be like from 039 sure. to 046. Yeah. You know, might be like Rhode Island or something. Yeah. And then the next two numbers 
are by year, but it's not like, you know, it's not like the year, like it's not like if, you know, you were born or you, in 1971, the number would be 71. Would, but if you were born in 71, the number might be like corresponding three, to five. Yeah. So it was all, and then the last four numbers are random. Okay. So I got these books and, and it broke all this down. So with that, you could kind of figure out I could, how to make off the birth certificate. I could, I could create a social security number. And then a lot of these DMVs, like you don't have to have a social security called all you have to have is a W-2 form. I yeah. think still to this day, all you have to have is a W-2 form. And the W-2 forms, you could go buy at a business wholesale supply <laughs> company, store, right? Yeah. You know, they're like those things, you know, like the the, the old stuff. I think they're probably still like that, where it has like the multiple sheets and yeah. they make the copies. Yeah. So I would go, I'd buy those, I'd type them up, I'd use that formula to get my social security number, and I'd go in there and I'd have the birth certificate and I got the... W2 with all the information and maybe I need like a bill or something in my name at, at the address where you yeah. know, I'm sending the ID and, and I did it. So I was getting like legitimate state ID. Um, you know, by the, by the uh, last two years, you know, the, the end of the time I was a fugitive before I, I got caught, I had like 25 fake IDs and I had four passports. Cause you my, had four passports yeah, yeah, in fake names. So my ultimate plan was to, uh, I mean, first, you know. What, what made you think you wouldn't leave the country? What made well, you stay I, in the I country? I wanted to leave the country. Because you had the four I, well, I, had, I had another goal. I yeah. wanted I wanted $250,000 cash. Ah, okay. I had, that was my goal. When I had $250,000 cash, jump. I was going to leave the country. Okay. And I was going to make a life in another country. And then, you know, establish an identity over there. Right. And then maybe eventually come back the to the States. That's the money you thought you needed to yeah. take that and jump. Then maybe eventually come back to the States. Yeah. As somebody from a different country. Yeah. So that was my plan. Um, you know, and I was working toward that goal because, you know, the whole time, once I ran out of money um, after six months in L.A., I went back to Texas. I, I hooked up with my Mexican uh, weed connections in Dallas, Texas, and um, I started running weed, loads of weed, brick pot from Dallas, Texas up to St. Louis. Mm -hmm. you know, so that's like my whole St. Louis connection was when I was a fugitive because I started running you know, like hundreds of pounds up here. That's how you met your girl too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was mostly, uh, I would do that on the train. So I, w I was doing that on Amtrak. So I would bring, I would bring like two duffel bags in. Sometimes I would check them. Sometimes I wouldn't, you know, with like 50 pounds each. And I would get like a sleeper car, you know, and I would, I would take, and it was only like a 10 hour shot from Dallas to St. Louis yeah. on Amtrak. And I, w I would take that ride, you know, like a 10, 12 hour. And I was bringing, you know, like every, every once a month, every other two weeks. And mo mostly I was taking a lot of it up to Columbia. Mm -hmm. you know, Mizzou. Mizzou. Yeah. And and that was kind of like my second little drug run that I had for, you know, like another maybe, uh, you know, 18 months or so. And um, like I said, I was making money. I kind of got my mojo back. I kind of got where I wasn't so paranoid. I started dating, you know, but it, every, everybody called me Christopher Haas. Because um, I had a whole bunch of different fake IDs where my the first name was Christopher. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't want anybody to know my last name. So, you know, I acted like I was from Texas. And in Texas back then, late 80s, early 90s, like they, everybody, they used to be like, what's up, Captain? What's up, Hoss? Mm -hmm. you know, that was so you just like, became Christopher yeah, Hoss. Yeah, so that was how, like, the, instead of saying dude down there, they yeah. would call you, like, Captain or Hoss. Mm -hmm. So um, I call everybody Hoss, you know, like I'm from Texas. You know, that's my backstory. So everybody called me Christopher Hoss. Wow. So when did, uh, so you're doing this, you're kind of getting more comfortable with the fact that you're a fugitive. Did they surprisingly grab you? Um, no, what, so what happened is, 
I was actually with a, a friend. Actually, he was a guy I met in Texas. It was from St. Louis that, you know, led to me coming up here, you know, because um, he used to buy weed from me. He worked in a restaurant and used to buy weed from me down there. And I was like, he was like, I'm going back to St. Louis. You know, that's where I went to high school. He's like, you want to come up and party? I was like, well, can you sell weed? You know, people that will buy weed? He's like, yeah. So I grabbed like 20 pounds and I went up there. I didn't even sell it all, but, you know, maybe I brought some back, probably like four or five pounds, but I made enough connections, you know, made it worth my while. So um, basically I, I, I had like another uh, little mini drug run, you know, but I, I never made, you know, like I said, I had that goal like 250, so I, I never came close. But um, it was like, because before that, the first six months, I was like really, really, paranoid like looking over my shoulder you mm -hmm. know because when the feds come in and just like take your whole life sure you know you, you think changes like, everything yeah, changes you the world like upside down. like all powerful you know they know everything's going on but you know in reality i mean they just rely on on cooperators and, and snitches you know they they don't know anything you know, yeah. there's no like uh inspector clouseau's on, <laughs> on the force right you know what i'm saying that yeah you no know, really i think our law enforcement and, and stuff have, they've gotten so lazy because of the war on drugs you know they don't do any investigating mm-hmm you know what I'm saying? They just rely on people telling them stuff. So, um, but yeah, it, it was kind of nice to kind of get my mojo back. I mean, I actually started feeling like a person again, mm -hmm. but then how it all came crashing down was I was actually with the same dude that, that, you know, introduced me to St. Louis and, um, he was still working at a restaurant and we were actually going out to party in, in St. Charles down on main street mm -hmm. and we were doing a drop and he was doing a drop at the restaurant but for whatever reason, it was too busy or something, so he couldn't do the drop. But I, I didn't know this. And it wasn't even a lot of weed. It was maybe like a half pound or something. And so then we went out, and I had to do a drop too. So I, I dropped like more. I think I dropped like three pounds. And um, dude had to go to dude's house, and he was going to come back. But, you know, like a lot of drug deals, like they take forever. So we went in. The, we were in this Burger King in St. Charles, and we actually went and ate. And then, like, they closed <laughs> And we're still waiting for this dude to bring me three pounds. And I don't know if there's any weed in the truck. So then, you know, we went and um, we want to sit in the truck and, and smoke some weed. So we didn't want to do it right in the parking lot. So we kind of pulled behind mm -hmm. the Burger King, like in the back. And it was closing time. So they were doing like what people do at closing time. And unfortunately, this Burger King had got robbed like two weeks before. Mm. Like and the people went right in the back and robbed him. So right? it looked like you guys were casing the joint. Yeah, we're just back there smoking weed. So they call the cops on us. Mm. The cops come, and really, we're smoking a joint. And I, I got a couple other joints in my pockets. You know, I got them, like, on the inside pocket of the jean. You know what I'm saying? Because mm. you had to conceal stuff back then just in case. So, um, you know, I think we're cool, right? Because I, I don't have any weed. And my dude, he supposedly made his drop. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and it's, 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 it's my guy's car. It's not even my truck. So, you know, they're take, taking our ID, whatever, you know, you know, asking if they can search the vehicle. You know, the guy says, yeah, you can search the vehicle. And, you know, they might smell weed, but, you know, we don't have any. They pat me down. They don't find nothing. And so then they go in his truck, and, and they look around. And um, the, actually, the guy was a musician, so he had a couple of guitar cases in the back. And so they first look, and, and they look. They don't see nothing. So, I mean, it's a truck. There's not like it's a lot of room. So they're like, okay, cool. But then the other cop, you know, because then by then, like, another cop car comes up. Like, every time, you know, there's always, like, two or three yeah. cops got to come up for one thing, which I always thought is crazy. Like, why do you need so many cops? You know, I guess it's an intimidation thing. I don't know. But um, so this other cop comes, and then, you know, I think we're good to go. And then he looks in the guitar case. He wants to look in the guitar case. And under the guitar, there's like a half pound of weed. 
they, you know, the guy couldn't drop because the, the kitchen was too busy. too busy. So, um, so I'm like, fuck. But still, at the same time, I'm like, well, it's not mine. It's his truck. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I got, I got a fake ID. I'm good. They don't know who I am. Mm-hmm. So they, but they arrest both of us. Yeah. We go to the station. You know, I holler at the dude. You know, because we're in the cell, they put us in their cells, and I tell him, I'm like, man, you better t- tell him that shit is yours, bro. I'm saying, well, you, that shouldn't even been there. Mm-hmm. You know, so he fucking tells him, he's like, oh, it's mine. You know, it's my car. He didn't have anything to do with it. So they let me go. But they had already printed me. You know, like when they first booked mm-hmm. us, they printed us. So, yeah. you know, I don't get a charge or nothing. They let me go because he says it's his. Yeah. So I get out. I go pick up the money for the three pounds, you know, from, from the guy that was selling the three pounds. You had to be a sigh of relief, though. They just let you out of there. Oh, yeah, of course. I go get the money, three pounds. I go back. I bail out the other dude yeah. with that money, and they impounded his car. I pay to get his car out, you know, and he has a charge. But, you know, they they uh, they took my prints. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at that time, too, I, I was watching all those shows. Like, I was watching America's Most Wanted, mm-hmm. uh you know, they, but you were unsolved, one of them. <laughs> yeah, unsolved mysteries. Yeah. I used to watch all that stuff to yeah. see like how long they take prints to match up. And I remember, you know, vividly, I'd watch the thing about like the Night Stalker, like Richard Ramirez. Yeah, and it was something crazy. Like this dude was like a, a serial killer, and it took like something like six months to match up his to prints. match his prints. Really? So, so I'm thinking, man, I'm just like this little weed yeah. LSD dealer. I'm like, it's going to take forever to match my prints. Mm-hmm. But see, because I had no idea, I was like a top 15 US. Yeah, you didn't list, know that, right? They matched my prints up in three days. Uh oh. Right. Then they had like the uh, whatever, like the uh, the Midwest Missouri US Marshals Task Force. You know, like, they don't even work out of St. Louis. Like, they bounce all around the Midwest. Yeah. So they're, like, in on my case. I find out all this afterwards. So the guy that I'm with, they have his real name and his address. So they go right to his house, and, and his address is, like, with his mom and his grandparents. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they convince him. You know, they bust him, and they convince him he has to turn Scares himself him to in. Yeah. And he has to cooperate. So then he starts driving the U.S. Marshals around to all the people that – we were selling weed too, because yeah. he was kind of like my partner too. Yeah. You know, he he was like my right hand man or whatever. He's the one who introduced me to all these people. So we're they're driving the U.S. Marshals, and it just so happened, you know, and people are telling me. So I'm getting phone calls, and I'm like, you know, I'm like, man, what am I going to do? You know, so I'm kind of like hiding out at hotels, you mm-hmm. know, because I don't know who to trust. So I'm like staying. I'm paranoid. Hold, hotel, yeah. hotel, and I got a, I got like a load of weed. And I'm trying to move, you know, and trying to turn into money. Like I'm having like a fire sale. Like I'm calling everybody. Nobody wants to mess with me right. because I'm hot. You're hot. Because everybody's getting word, you know, that the U.S. Marshals are looking for me. Right. So um, finally, I talked to this guy up in Columbia that I did a lot of business with and I gave him a good deal. And he's like, okay. He's like, I'm going to be down there tomorrow. He goes, I got the cash. I'm going to take everything you got. Okay. I'm like, cool. And then, uh, it just so happens, like, one, one of the local dudes that, that I had dropped him off, you know, he'd bought, like, five pounds. And right when he pulled in his house, the U.S. Marshals pulled in right after him. Wow. And he knew at the hotel that I was at, you know, while I was setting up this big yeah. you know, Columbia deal. So he tells them. So, you know, uh, they come and, and they do surveillance on me because they want to see what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So they watch me all night. But nobody comes and goes because I'm just waiting on this one dude. He was supposed to come see me, like, 10 a.m. that morning. U.S. Marshals busted into my hotel room. I was staying right by the airport, like in Bridgeton. They busted my room like 6 a.m. Busted me with the weed. I only had like whatever, 20-something pounds. I didn't have that much money, man. I maybe had like, you know, I don't know, three, four grand. But I had all my fake IDs. 
had like yeah. 25 fake IDs. I had like four passports. All of it on you. Yeah. Everything, you know, because I'm ready. I'm ready. Like, as soon as I make this deal, like, I'm You're going to be gone. I, I was already made plans. I was going down to New Orleans. Yeah. You know? I had some people down in New Orleans, and then I was going to go to, like, Baton Rouge, go to, like, LSU. This is the last deal. Yeah. I was going to get some more weed in Texas, and I was going to go to LSU. I had friends in Baton Rouge, and I was going to sell weed there, mm-hmm. you know, and hide out. And they come and they get me, you know, and then, uh, you know, and then I know it's up. They, like, you know, they tell me, like, you're top 10. Yeah. Top 15 U.S. Marshals list. You know, they take me into the uh, the federal holding cells, you know, in St. Louis. Yeah. And um, it was crazy because, uh, like, when they caught me, like, I still had no idea, right, that I, that I was this high priority. Yeah. Like, everybody's coming by. Like, they want to see me. Like, I felt like I'm an animal in a zoo. Uh-huh. You know, they're like, oh, is that him? Is That's that him? him. And then the U.S. Marshals finally come back. And, you know, they, they do stuff like they're like, they bring me in a little office. And they're like, uh. They're like, uh, you know, you want a Coke? You want a candy bar? They're like, uh, sign, sign your wanted poster. Mm. That's wild. And they give me like a Coke and a candy bar. And I'm still like, I'm still, you know, not really clued in. And then they kind of, I'm like, why, what's the big deal? And they tell me. And I'm like, I'm like, how am I like, you got like killers and murderers <laughs> and, and I made terrorists. The and you, you got a, like a, basically I'm, I'm like a cannabis psychedelic yeah. activist, mm-hmm. nonviolent. Mm-hmm. And I'm like top 15. So I, I just thought, I thought it was like one of the most crazy things, you know, but whatever, you know, it's cool. I got a cool one and poster out of it. So I guess you did. And, and, uh, not too many people have that Seth. So you, you did, how did it happen pretty fast? The, from that point forward to getting into prison? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was caught like October. I was sentenced. Like I was caught, like, I think October 30th or something. I was sentenced December 13th. And what was your, your world like when you, when they gave you that 25 year sentence? I mean, what did that do? No, it was crazy. So when the judge first said it, right. So I got 300, you know, the feds give you months. So Mm -hmm. they say, which you had to figure that out. 304 months. So when he first said 304 months, I was kind of like, Hmm, that's not that bad. But then I started at, I was like, wait, that is a lot. 12, 12, 12, 12, 12. I'm like, how how many, like, I don't even know how many years that is. I couldn't even do the math. (laughs) No, it's too much math. I'm like, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12. (laughs) You know, and and so, you know, it ended up, I had a 25-year, four-month sentence. I was only 22, so I had more time than how old I was. Than what they were giving you. For a first-time nonviolent cannabis LSD offense. So. Whatever. But basically, at this point, like I'm, I'm kind of in shock. You know, my my first time in prison. You know, I've just been in the county jails, yeah. but still. Um, and 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 the two, county jail is awful. I mean, you know, that's one of the things that, as you get through the system, you understand that the county jail is kind of like the bottom rung of society, and then you go live basically and create a life for yourself in prison. So, you get sentenced. You get the 25 years. Where do they send you to, Seth? So I started out at FCI Manchester in okay. Kentucky. So I started out. Um, Is that a medium? Yeah, started yeah. out like a medium high. Like, look. Well, because they're not going to let you down low because you're, you're an escape risk. I was a fugitive. I was, yeah. I was a escape risk. So I had all these security. Look, when I first came in, right, like when I first got captured and then even my first five years, like when I would transfer, I was black boxed. Yeah. And they made me like sit in the back of the plane. So sure. I, got, I got this other thing. So right when I first come in, like I, I came in, like they shipped me to El Reno because yeah. it was before they had Oklahoma City. So El Reno was a transit spot. And so, I didn't even know that. I just yeah. have always heard of Oklahoma City being yeah, the so transport. Yeah, so that after. So I, I go to El Reno, right, and I get on the plane, and, um, you know, they're, they're taking me back. 
you know, after I get designated, I go from, you know, they fly, which is crazy too. They fly me from Virginia out to El Reno mm -hmm. to fly back to Kentucky. Yeah. Which, Do a little zigzag. You know, that's, that's the BOP and yeah. the, the U.S. Marshals logic, but that's how they always do it. So we go there, boom, I'm in El Reno, whatever, you know, a week or so waiting for to catch my plane or my bus. And then we go back and I get on this plane and um, we land in, in Terry Hut, Indiana, yeah. where the penitentiary is, right? Mm -hmm. They got an airstrip there. And so here, here I am, I'm like, you know, I'm tall, I'm like 6'1", but I'm like maybe, you know, 185 pounds. You know, I was athletic, you know, I, I didn't really work out, though. I was just, you know, athletic, played a lot of sports growing up and stuff like that. And I'm sitting, but I'm like short hair, you know, I look like a college kid, mm -hmm. you know, pale because yeah, I- you're only 20 years down. old or 22 years yeah. old. And so I'm sitting in the back of the plane and I'm black box. And there's like a U.S. Marshal sitting like right across from me, like looking at me the whole time. Mm -hmm. So here comes, you know, the bus from Terry Heck. You might like explain that. what black box is because people get shackled, but then the, the, the bad boys of the bad boys get the black box. Yeah, so what the black box is, it's like a little box that like makes your wrists go like right together. Mm -hmm. So it's like handcuffs. They put the black box over the handcuffs so you have no movement. Can't move at and all. Then, and then they, they attach that to your waist chain. Yep. You know, so it's like you have no hand movement, like anything. That's what they do. For and being shackled is worse enough. I mean, that that makes you feel like you're an animal. But the black box thing is a whole other Yeah, so it level. was crazy. So um, we're at the airstrip in Terry Hut, and, you know, they bring the bus from, you know, the USP Terry Hut, you know, which was a, a pretty violent prison. You know, a lot of people, lifers. And so I'm, I'm kind of sitting there in the back of the plane. And, like, and they got weights there, too. So, like, all these huge dudes, you know, all these, like, big biker looking dudes they look like thor you know with tattoos all muscled out you know all these big big black dudes look yeah. like debo you know getting on and uh you know all these like you know hardcore spanish colombian cartel looking dudes and like italian mafia dudes and they're all getting on the plane and they like they're all turning because i'm right in the back of the plane where they get up and they're all <laughs> this turning guy like, with the black they're box. looking at me and they're like you know i could just see them, their eyes they're like Who's this dude? Yeah. Why is he here? Yeah. Who's this? What is this? Like Jeffrey Dahmer or something? <laughs> you know, I mean, they didn't have a muzzle on me or right, nothing, but, right. you know, they're, they're just looking at me. And I look like a little college kid. Yeah. So, you know, that was kind of like my first memory, like of like real prison. When Being they, indoctrinated. And, and, I, and I'm looking at these dudes and I'm like, man, I'm like, I'm like, I'm glad I'm not going to Terry Hut. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But I don't know what Manchester is, but, you know, I know it's only SDI and not a USP. So I'm like, yeah. man, I'm glad I didn't go to the USP. So finally, you know, I get I get to the uh, Manchester, and um, it was actually kind of nice. It was like a college campus. Actually, when I first came in, you, they actually had uh, professors from Eastern Kentucky, like, coming on the, on the school. So I, I immediately rolled in college courses. Mm. They, they used to be able to use Pell Grants for prisoners there. That mm -hmm. only lasted my first two years. So that kind of college program lasted like my first two years when I was there, I got like 24 credits and, um, yeah, I would just work out, play sports, uh, go to class, you know, um, was it I, easy for you to get, you know, because going into prison, I think is always interesting from the standpoint that there you are the new guy they do look at you they try to you know check you out see who you are um did you find your people fairly easily uh in the beginning because you know i th you're i think probably for you seth your for your first five years would probably be different than your next you know 15 18 years i mean walk me through some of that that happened to you first five years you're there because then you, you became pretty you know prolific in how you got involved with the sports you got involved writing the the uh 
the newsletter that had all the stats on it that everybody was sending home to their 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 families and you got involved in so many different things but kind of walk me through how that all happened yeah well um i mean looking back now i mean i was i was kind of I was kind of lucky in a sense because prison is really about people judge you by who your allies are. So right. who you hang around or yeah. who they see you on the compound with, that's kind of, you know, they equate you with those people. Mm-hmm. So I had two things going for me because I'm in Kentucky. My case is out of Virginia. I'm an 083 number. But immediately when you hit the compound, they're like, where are you from? Mm-hmm. I'm from California because I grew up in California. So, you know, I'm from California. So the only other dudes, so the, the people on the block, they're like, okay, we're going to get your homeboys. So the only people from California are the the Serenos, the mm. Mexican gangbangers. And there's not a lot of them. There's maybe like five, six on the whole compound. Actually, two of With them. some hardcore yeah, dudes. two of them, you know, luckily two of them happen to be on my block. Yeah. So so they bring these Mexican gangbangers to me. They're like, where are you from? I'm like, oh, I grew up in San Diego, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're like, where's your case? Oh, my case out of Virginia. You know, I was, I was shipping, you know, stuff from Cali, Northern Cali to uh, Virginia, selling at colleges. You know, so then they're like, okay, um, you know, you got to write this cop out. You got to get your PSI. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to check out your paperwork. So I do that. You know, they get my PSI, you know, check out my sentence, read it. You know, they sit there in the cell with me and they read it. Mm-hmm. And they're like, they're like, okay, you're okay. So they're like, and then they tell me, they're like, look, anybody else ask for your paperwork? We Like, we don't care, white boys, whatever. Mm-hmm. You tell them we read it. You know, we vouch you're for good. you. We read your shit. Yeah. You're good. You can walk. Right? So then... I go, I'm working out with these dudes. They're like, come on, homeboy, we're going to go work out. So I'm working out with them. Like, so they're so part of your car. Dude. Yeah, because it's, it's <laughs> the only California dudes. It's yeah. me and these fucking, like, five Serenio dudes. Yeah. So I'm with them. So then immediately all the other white boys see me with these guys. And this is weird, too, because at that time, I didn't know. Like, I was so naive. Like, these Serenio dudes, like, they're running the, the, the heroin on the compound. Wow. Like, I have no idea. Yeah. So, I'm, like, this new white kid. I got, like, this 25-year sentence. You know, people find that out real quick. Mm-hmm. You know, because even some people, like, they're, like, how much time you got? I'm, like, 25. They're, like, what'd you do? Kill people? Mm-hmm. You know, mass murder? I'm, like, no, nah, I sold LSD and marijuana. Mm-hmm. So this was still, a lot of the people were still in from the 80s, like the old law. So this is like still the beginning of, of the new law. You know, these laws. The hardcore laws. Yeah, yeah the, the, the mandatory minimums and stuff. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you didn't see people coming in with that kind of time, mm-hmm. you know, and especially not like a, a little white kid from the suburbs. So um, that was one thing that helped me. The other thing that helped me, you know, I got Italian last name. Yeah. You know, Very Italian. I'm, 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 the, I'm on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of mob dudes. So all the mob dudes start coming to me. Mm-hmm. You know, all the Italians, they're like, you know, who's your grandpa? Who's your dad? You know, my grandpa and my dad were both military guys. But, yeah. you know, where are you from? Where's your family from? You know, they're trying to see if there's any connection. Any connection. And there was no connections, but still, they liked me. They saw I'm messing still with the Serenos. <laughs> yeah, they say I'm messing with the Serenos. So they figure, like, I got to be somebody. Yeah. So, you know, within a couple weeks of being on the compound, I'm walking around, I'm sitting, you know, I'm sitting in the chow hall with the mob dudes. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sitting at the Italian table. Yeah. And I'm working out with the Serenos. Yeah, you're plugged in. So all the white dudes are looking at me like, who is this yeah. dude? And then, I, like I say, I didn't know that Serenos were running the drugs, you know. <laughs> I had no idea. So eventually, like, like I'm in there like, you know, four, five, six months, like a lot of the white dudes start coming up to me, and, you know, especially the guys from Virginia because they find out I got a Virginia case. I'm over 83. They're like, yo, homeboy. They're like, man, plug us in. What are you talking about? They're like, plug us in, man, with your homies. And, and like, I have no you idea. You had no idea. I have no idea. Yeah. So this was kind of like my entrance, you know, to federal prison. So um, 
I did 12 years in the mediums, my first 12 years of mediums. So that's like, and, and you know, if you've been in the feds, they call the mediums like glad, gladiator school. Gladiator school, right. Like, you know, you got to fight. You know, like 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 I say, I'm, I mean, was, I had to fight. I played a lot of sports. I mm-hmm. was out on the yard. So, you know, luckily I, I was always the type of dude. I, I never let stuff fester. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's certain things. There's a lot of stuff can happen yeah. out on the yard. Yeah, but there's a lot of stuff like you you can't call especially basketball. Yeah, you can't call dudes like 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 certain words. Yeah, so, you know once you know um, you know because actually the Sereno dude actually sat me down and he was like you know um, don't do drugs, don't gamble, don't mess with punks. Mm-hmm. And he was like, if you got a problem, come get me. Okay, you know what I'm saying. So that was kind of like my rules. You know, he gave me the your um, prison rules. rules. Yeah. So then, you know, and then I, I learned too. Like, there's certain things like you don't you don't call a man like you can't call a man a bitch. You can't call a man a punk. You can't call a man a faggot. Mm-hmm. You know, or whatever. So, um, you know, I was all these type of dude because I played a lot of sports. Like, if somebody came out of their mouth wrong, I mean, I I didn't care if there was cops or anything there. I I would just punch them because that's how the Sereno dudes taught me. They're like, man, if you got something, handle don't take it. it. Hand, don't let it fester. Handle right. it right there. Stand it. Stand up. You know, because then whatever, you guys are both going to go the whole, you know, you might come out, you know, because if you make it a beef and it becomes racial or then mm-hmm. people want to get a knife or come stab you and it can turn. So they're like, just handle it. They, 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 their attitude was like, they didn't care if it was in the chow hall. Mm-hmm. They go handle it. Right like, then. Handle your business. So that's mm-hmm. what they taught me. So, you know, I was in, you know, not a lot of situations like that, but a little, you know, like I, I would fight. Like I always tell people, like I, my nose has been broken like five times. I got... My right split right here. My yeah. lower lip, I got split right here, and I got split right here. And, like, I don't have a knuckle. Oh, wow. You don't. You know, that's all from fighting. Yeah. You know, like that. I probably broke this, like, five times. Like, I got, like, they call it, like, a boxer's. Yeah. A boxer's knuckle. I don't think I've seen that. You know what I'm saying? Hey, you don't have a knuckle there. Yeah. It's from punching people. But, uh, you know, so, like it's I said, good I story, fight. though. Yeah, so I did, like, I did, like, 12 years. Um, in the gladiator school, that's a good thing to say. Like if you're a bar, you're like, why don't you have that knuckle? I was like, one, I was looking at a bunch of fights in prison. <laughs> you know, not to say I was not a tough guy or nothing, but you know, yeah, I, you I would said fight. you had to handle your yeah, business. I, as I a would handle. fight, and I, yeah. I played a lot of sports, and I, and you know, primitive world. Yeah, and, and and like in there, anyhow, you know, if you don't fight, it's like your own people are the ones who are going to come and prey on you. Right. So, like I say, you know, I I kind of established my reputation as like a crazy white boy. Like I was a white dude that was out, you know, running running full court. With all with all the black dudes, you yeah. Know, I was a white dude that was playing soccer with all the Spanish, Mexicans, and Jamaicans. Yeah. You know, I, I was always that guy. But you know, one thing I thought about, you know, playing sports in, in uh, prison. I think the one cool thing about the whole sports scene in prison was it really wasn't an escape. You know, oh definitely. You, you definitely. go out there and you play a basketball game, yeah. you play a softball game, you play a volleyball game, you play uh, soccer, whatever it is. It, it, or we even had a tennis court that was crazy ass tennis court that moved it it was a sport court and we had to it's hard to explain but anyway we even play a little bit of tennis but it, it all those things you you had an escape it felt like you were outside of the fence yeah no it took it really it took, did it took you away you know I, that's why that's why i'm saying that's why I, I played sports i worked out and then you know i started taking the college classes you know and then eventually i get into my writing because that, that was kind of like my escape so do you think seth that that is when you started doing those courses is that what kind of fueled your flame to to say, "Wow, I, I've got a bunch of stories in here"? Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely, man. Um, because you created a yeah. business for yourself in inside prison, prison yeah, yeah. which is terribly unique from the standpoint that it's hard to get things done. You, your, you know, your uh, your phone calls are fil- are taped. Uh, they record and limited, them all and limited. 
unlimited. You have, uh, whenever you're sending stuff back and forth with True Links, and I don't know if they had True Links and Core Links in the 90s, but they look at that. Yeah, they didn't. Until, so, it didn't come around until like 2010 so any, or something. So any of that stuff is... is, is yeah, it's all monitored. It's all monitored. So you were able to, to write columns for Vice and other things inside prison, which I find is fascinating. But tell me how that all... Because you, you started kind of opening up your mind to, my God, these there's guys in here that are famous pretty much on the streets, but they don't have any books about them. Yeah. Well, see, because I was taking the college courses, I was in the law library all the time, you know, because first I was taking the college co- classes on the Pell Grant, but then I started taking correspondence courses, mm-hmm. you know, which my parents pay for, the, the prison that pay for them. So I had maybe 24 credits that were funded by Pell Grants, and then you know, I was doing so good, you know, I kind of convinced my parents, you know, my parents, everybody in my family has a master's degree anyhow. So it was like, it's time for you course. to get your yeah. master's degree in prison. Mine just took a lot longer. Yeah. You know, but um, <laughs> it was a long journey for me. But um, so I was always in the law library and I was always typing stuff up because I was always sending my papers out. You yeah. Know? And I, I was taking mostly, uh, you know, in, in correspondence, you can go like a business route or you can kind of go like a, a, you know, like a, a literary English route. Yeah you know, like humanities. So I went the humanities route, you know. I was always kind of a creative person anyhow. You know, I, I like, played guitar, sung in bands, you uh-huh. know, wrote poetry. You were going to you know, be a rock star. Yeah, I was, like, dungeon master for, like, D&D and stuff yeah. like that. So I was already kind of creative. I, I'd even started, like, uh, you know, what I would have called, like, the great American novel a couple times as a teenager, but never, you know, never yeah. wrote more than a couple of pages because it was, you know, too much work. I was out there partying and stuff. Right. But um, I was always in there on the typewriter. And then being that I had all these connections, like by playing sports, you know, in there, they have the, like the administrative remedies, like the cop outs, you know, BP nine, yeah. BP eight and a half. So every time people had problems or would go to the hole or they would take their privileges or they were trying to move, get closer to their family or get their visits back or good time, they had to file these. And, and the way they did it, like you had to type them up and there was mm-hmm. like limited typewriters. So I had like all the time, like, like, you know, white dudes, black dudes, Spanish dudes that I knew from playing sports, mm-hmm. they would see that I was in there. So they would come and they'd say, Hey man, can you type this up? For mm-hmm. me? You know, whatever, I'll give you a book of stamps. Mm-hmm. It'd be so, like you know, gold. Yeah, yeah, I would do that. I would do that a lot. And so then I started doing this as I was doing my college courses. And, um, eventually after a couple of years, like I got where like, I could charge like 25 bucks because mm-hmm. like I, I was winning. You know, I was getting people good time back. I yeah. was getting people Huge. commissary back. I was getting people transferred. I was getting people lower bunks. Yeah. You know, I, I was getting people like special tennis shoes, like anything you could get that people were trying to get. I became known as, you know, not a, like a jailhouse lawyer. No, but that gets around. Court. Yeah. yeah. But, but in-house This guy stuff, can help you. Yeah. So it started out just typing, you know. And so I got, this was like my side hustle. Right. And at the same time, I'm, I'm doing my college courses. And so I start, I'm, I'm doing really heavily. Uh, I'm, and I'm reading too, like when I first get in there, I'm reading like every prison book I can find because mm-hmm. I'm basically schooling myself. I don't know anything about prison. Sure. You know, so this is kind of like, you know, my guide to prison. So right. the first two years I was in, I probably read like every, you know, I read like uh, In the Belly of the Beast, Jack Henry Abbott, Soledad Brother, George Jackson, Life from Death Row, Mamiya Abu Jamal, you know, just every prison book. Anything you get a hold of. I read. Because it was all like, you know, information. Your you education of prison. Yeah. So then, too, I was like, I started thinking, right? I'm like, I want to write my version mm-hmm. of this. So that was the basis of my first book, Prison Stories. And actually, the first pris- first 30 pages of Prison Stories, I have actually wrote for a fiction fiction course that I was taking through the... Uh, College. Yeah, Iowa yeah. State University, or University of Iowa. 
And then also at the same time, like, you know, there's all these mafia dudes, you know, so I'm, I'm calling my mom or my, or my girl. I'm like, uh, find me some books, you know, this mafia dude, like they're on, they're like in the next block. Mm -hmm. They're sending me the books. And there's all these at that time, early nineties too, there's all these Colombian car cocaine mm -hmm. cartel dudes. So I'm like, find me the books. And then, you know, around 95, that's when gangster rap blew up. Right. Right. So, you know, like I, I was, a lot of times I was like the, the only white dude, like in the, the yo MTV raps or the BET room, you know, cause I, I liked hip hop anyhow. Mm -hmm. And I played basketball with all these guys so I could go in there, you know, so I'd be like the only white dude. So I was like privy to like these, you know, stories and they were in people the talking that you couldn't hear anywhere else, yeah. you know, besides prison, mm -hmm. you know, uh, about, you know, the, the African American, uh, you know, hip hop mythology, like drug lore, you know, street lore, whatever you want to call it. They were with you. Yeah. So, so we're watching these raps and they're dropping names of these different dudes, you know, from like New York, DC, Philly, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the big cities, even LA, you know, the big rappers. But at that time, a lot of the big rappers were the East coast guys, you know, NWA had already come and passed, but, um, you know, like 50 cent was big, you know, like, uh, Nas and they're dropping these names of all like these street legends, you know, these hood legends. And um, then, like, the dudes would talk about him. There might be, like, a dude from Queens, and he's like, oh, yeah, that's my homie, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. He's like, uh, I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm like, what, what's that? He's like, oh, yeah, he's over on B Block. I'm mm -hmm. like, what? <laughs> he's right here. So um, so then, you know, I call my mom or, or my girl, and I'm like, I'm like uh, find me some books on them. Find me some books. <laughs> and there's, like, no books. There's no books. There's no books on these dudes. They might find a magazine article yeah. here or there, you know, that they, you know, by this time, you know, it's it's like the internet had started, you know, like around 96. So they mm -hmm. would print me out stuff or they would try to find me newspaper articles. Or they a lot of times they would go like on LexisNexis and find me articles yeah. and stuff like that and send them to me. And um, so I started reading this stuff. So then I started forming in my head. I'm like, you know, at the same time, you know, I'm working in recreation and I'm, I'm doing uh, like sports newsletters on the intramural mm -hmm. sport leagues. Which is huge in prison. Yeah, I like mean, I'm that doing, whole thing is yeah. gigantic. You can't explain how big that is, how big the sports world is. for. And, and you're keeping their stats and yeah. writing well, I stories. Started out, I started out with doing the stats yeah. and doing, like, the win-loss records and posting those. And then when I was doing that, like, dudes from, like, some of the older prisons or the USPs, they would be like, why don't you do a newsletter? Yeah. I'd be like, what are you talking about? Because I, I, I was a dude column. that I would walk around to every unit and post the stuff, like, on the bulletin I bet they loved that. was my that. job. And dudes kept hitting me up, like, why, why don't you write, like, a, a column? Why don't you write a sports yeah. newsletter? I'm going to be like, what do you mean? So they started showing me one. <laughs> Here's what you want. Here's what we want. <laughs> yeah, from other, they, they've done, right? Yeah. And so I started looking at it. And then, like, I used to get USA Today every day, you know, at mail call and I, I, for the sports section. And I remember back then, like, Peter Vesey had, like, a column. Yeah. And, some, and Dick Vitale had, like, a yeah. column. Yeah. And I used to read that stuff religiously. So I'm seeing these sports newsletters from these other prisons, and I'm reading these columns every day. And then I'm like, I can do like that. boom, I can write these columns. Yeah. So I go propose to the recreational. And they're like, yeah, cool. So, you know, I start doing that. I'm taking writing classes at college. Mm -hmm. I'm writing in the prison you know, for my prison audience. Right. Right. And then I find out there's all these gangsters that, that are, are being lionized and, and mythologized in, in hip hop lore. Right. And they're all on the compound with me and there's no books about them. No books. So it's just like, boom. Yeah. It like hits me. You know what I'm saying? And, and so I love it. I mean, I mean, I love it for so many different reasons because you, what a way to, what a way to do your time to find a passion that you're really good at 
And then you've got the content right there and you can work with it. And to me, that's just, uh, I don't know what you call that, Seth, but, you know, you weren't in the right place, but it was the right time for you to find that thing that you were, you were passionate about good with and, and had a talent for. And then all of a sudden you, you start writing all these different books, which, um, and, and another big thing that, 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 that kind of motivated me, yeah. gave me like a blueprint. So at the end of the nineties, that's like when the urban fiction genre blew up. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's all these books coming in the prisons. It's all urban fiction. Right, for some dudes in prison, like like Terry Woods was yeah. a big author, you know, uh, Shannon Holmes, mm-hmm. you know, um, Mickey Stewart, mm-hmm. and, and they're forming like their own companies, right? And they're like selling like hundreds of thousands of books because it's like this new genre, you know. It's basically like, you know, if you go back a while, you got like Iceberg Slim and Donald Goins, but that's like the only books you can, and those were in the seventies, so that's the only books you can even compare these books to. Yeah. So. I see these books and I see how the, the, the people are reacting to them. Right. Right. And I see like, these are like totally like independent companies. Mm-hmm. Right. So I just, I look at like, you know, I looked at like Terry Woods uh, imprint and I looked at Vicki Stringer, which was triple crown books. And I just look at these and I'm like, man, I'm like, I can do this mm-hmm. except I'm going to write about these real gangsters. I'm going to do nonfiction. And at the same time I had started uh, doing articles and stuff too, like on prison life, you mm-hmm. know, like I had, I had this column for vice called like I'm busted, Yeah, you know, where I'm, I'm writing about different prisons. I mean, that's stuff. out in the real world when you're in prison. Yeah. And, and I'm doing other little, I'm doing a lot of stuff for like prison newsletters about mm-hmm. criminal justice reform. But you know, I start, I start, you know, trying to work myself as a journalist, but at the same time, I'm like, I want to do books. So, um, you know, all this is kind of going through my head and, and I'm, I'm thinking like, what can I do for my future? Mm-hmm. You know, because I started, you know, my first five years, I was, like, really angry, you know, at my sentence. But, you know, after the first five years, you know, I kind of settled down. And, like, I had I had a couple different mentors, mm-hmm. you know, older me dudes had done more time, you know, that kind of saw, you how to saw do some your potential time. and value in me. Yeah. And, they, you know, I, I had one dude that was really influential on me, named, uh, Michael Santos, who uh, he had, like, uh, he had a crazy, he had, like, 45 years, like, old law. He ended up doing, like, 26. You know, he's a cocaine dealer from Washington, but Cuban descent. Mm-hmm. So, um, he, like influenced me tremendously mentored you you know and um you know that was his thing like what are you doing now for your future he's like every day you're in here you have to do something for your plan for your future and i I used to work out with this dude every day and um you know he he started writing books too like this this dude was like this dude was like a a genius he had he had actually like he made like over a million dollars like on the dot-com boom in the 90s like by basically watching the bottom line Mm in the TV and then calling his sister who would like buy him stocks. Wow. You know, obviously he had a little money to begin sure. with to buy the stocks, yeah. but he basically turned like a hundred thousand into like 1.2 million. Then I think he lost his ass. Like when the, uh, you know, in the late nineties when yeah. the dot com busted. Yeah. But you know, he did all this from prison. That's cool. So I saw him yeah, he's like writing that. books. Yeah. And I'm seeing what he's doing. And, um, you know, even I, I, at that time I'd got a couple pieces, you know, I'd been doing the prison, basketball mm-hmm. and, and sports intramural stuff in the prison. So I was like a prison journalist you yeah. know, on the compound, but I was also had a couple things, you know, where I wrote about my case, like in different fam gram or different, you know, mm-hmm. November coalition. And, um, and so, you know, and I took some classes, you know, and, and was working on my, my associates and 
bachelor's degree by this time. So I used to tell people like, I'm a writer, I'm a writer, mm -hmm. I'm a writer, you know? And, uh, you were a writer. Like, yeah. But he was a dude, he used to bust my balls. So I'm with him and he's like, well, what have you written? And I'm showing him basically like the same piece has been published in all these different right. prison newsletters. Yeah. And he's like, well, what else have you written? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I got all these pieces published. You know, I'm like, oh, I, you know, I'm yeah. a published writer. Right. You know, and, and I write all these, uh, you know, stuff in prison. It's posted on the bulletin board. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. So he takes me to his cell. Seth, when this got published out into the world, did you use your name? Yeah, yeah. Did they ever come back on you in the prison world and, and put you in the hole and say, hey, you can't conduct business in prison? Oh, yeah, yeah. I got yeah. I got put in the hole tons yeah. of times. I fought battles with them. Yeah. But um, so this guy, Michael Santos, who became like a real big mentor for me, um, he took me to his cell and he just had like boxes and boxes of stuff he's written. He's like, you know what? He's like, most of this stuff will never get published. Mm -hmm. But he goes, you know, this, this is me practicing my trade. So he's like, if you want to be a writer. Right. He goes, you need to start writing. So then I, you know, I started writing more stuff and, and he was a real big influence on me and I started pitching more stuff and I kind of became a journalist from prison. As soon as I started becoming a journalist from prison, writing for like Don Diva magazine, Feds magazine, you know, Vice and in other places. Like I even had stuff like in Maxim and FHM. Mm -hmm. um, and I started getting paid. You know, that's when the problem came because then like the SIS who were like the prison investigators, mm -hmm. they started writing me shots for running a business, conducting a business, you know, acting as a reporter. Yeah. And they started locking me up, you know, because a lot of times I would call the people right on the phone because back then you could call straight. You know, it wasn't until like the late 90s where they did where you had the call, you had to push to accept and stuff like that. Right. Back then you could call straight as long as you had money on your phone and there was no limitations on how much you could talk. You know, yeah. That came later, the 300 minute rule. But, um, which was really 10 minutes a day. Yeah, which sucked. But so I'm getting locked up and then, um, then, then I kind of found this loophole, right? So, um, I'm looking at all the, the rules and regulations and, and stuff like this and I find this loophole where, you know, basically it said, like, if you own a house or a car and you're in prison, you can give a relative or a friend power of attorney. Absolutely. To sell that property for yep. you. You know, then you're not conducting business. Like, it broke it down. This is not, if, but if you get on the phone and you're trying to sell it right. yourself, then you're conducting business. That's but if somebody rule. else has the power of attorney. Yeah, so I was like, okay, well, all my writing is intellectual property. Right. Right? So... I gave, you know, my, my girl, um, who eventually became my wife, I gave her power of attorney. Mm -hmm. And so she used to conduct all the business. Oh, yeah. I would send the stuff that the people would like, they would ask me to write this and ask me to write that, like editors. Yeah. But I would send it to them and I would type it, but she would negotiate and she would conduct the business. Brilliant. And then Love she it. would, and then she would put, she would get the check from them and then she would, you know, put deposit in her account and then she would put it right on my account. <laughs> <laughs> I so it. I started doing this and they hated oh, that. They wouldn't have liked Man, that at all. they hated that when I did that. <laughs> but I had them, they couldn't do nothing. So I always had what I call sit downs. Yeah. Like with the SIS. And a lot of times I had to bring somebody else with me, you know, because if you can't go in the SIS, oh, yeah, SIS yourself, is a nasty yeah, then people deal. People say you're a snitch, right? Yeah. So I would always have to bring a friend with me and I would have these sit downs. And even like the dudes I'd bring, they'd be like, dude, like, how do you like. Like, you're talking to SIS, like, you're equal. Yeah. You know, because I would have these sit They're scared people. I, I knew the rules. You know, they're, they they're, were, they're the guys, they're the cops within the, the, they're the like prison. They're like the FBI. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. They're like the FBI. They're, like the they're FBI the ones that the bust prison. the cops. Exactly. They're the ones that bust the cops for bringing in drugs exactly. and stuff like that. They arrest cops and walk them off the compound. Right. But, um, 
So I'm having sit downs with these guys because they're like really concerned about my writing. They're like really concerned, like I'm going to expose something, something sure. that's going to come back on them. Yeah. So, um, you know, once I found out what their kind of concerns were, I started writing stuff. Uh, you know, I would write something like even if it was from the institution I was in, I would make it seem like it was from another somewhere, institution. somewhere else. Yeah. So I started doing stuff like that, changing names, mm -hmm. obviously, so people Smart. couldn't get targeted. You know, but I would still use my own name yeah. as a, because I was trying to build a career for myself. Exactly. You're, building a, when they you're me building a brand. Up, even when they locked me up. Yeah. You know, like, dude, I wrote, like, whole manuscripts, like, in the hole. When you were in the hole. In the hole with those little flimsy pencils yeah. that you can barely write with. Like, uh -huh. I have wrote hundreds and hundreds of pages. Unbelievable. Like that, freehand. And then I would wait till I get out and I would type it. Unbelievable. You know, and so I used to tell the SIS dudes, I was like, go ahead, put me in the hole. I'll just write more. Yeah. I, and I, my basic, my whole attitude was like, you cannot stop me. I'm doing something for my future. I don't care if you lock me up short term. I said, I'm not doing nothing wrong. And they would always lock me up too under under some BS. Like I was trying to smuggle in drugs mm -hmm. or later on. Like well, they pretty much throw you in the hole for anything. I mean, yeah, I mean yeah. your, your rights of going in or out of the hole in prison, you just don't have any. So... Seth, you get through all of this, and what I think is just incredible is you end up serving, what, 23 years, 21 years? 21, 21. Okay, so 21 years. So you basically went in the 90s. You come out, you know, you're, 2015. 2015, you're 40. I was uh, 43. 43. How the world must have felt to you walking out of that prison. Can you explain that? I mean, that's yeah, so I, right, I, that's just wild to me because so, I mean, everything had changed. Yeah, I mean, so you right still see got, it on TV, but walking into it. Right when I got out, you know, um, so I did the trick that a lot of people do when they get out. Like they say they're going to take the bus, yeah, but they don't take the bus. They have mm -hmm. their people pick them up, right? you know, because if your people pick them up, they only give you like a certain amount of hours. But if you say you get the bus, you get the give whole you more bus hours, trip. right? Yeah, so you get like double time. So I did that, and uh, my wife picked me up, and um, first thing we did is uh, we went to Walmart, mm -hmm. you know, because I was going to the halfway house, and I needed, like, some work clothes, you know, because I, I already had a job lined up at a kitchen, and um, and and I, I remember walking around the Walmart, and it was just like, I, I had to go back in the car and tell her what I wanted because it was like sensory overload. Sensory like overload. The choices. Yeah. You know, because for like 21 years, I was used to like, you know, there's like one brand of peanut butter. <laughs> exactly. You know, and I just write it on a list and I put the list right, in and, and they, they slide it, to it down to you. So like walking around, you know, like having all those options and trying to choose, yeah. it was like too much for me. Like I, I, like I literally, I went back in the it's car too much. and I'm like, just, just give me stuff. Here's my size. <laughs> I can't, you know, I can't take it. Yeah. You know, and then, uh, so so that was a big thing. And, and the other big thing was, like, the phones, like, the technology. Yeah. And, um, you know, one thing I did do, so, like, two years before I got out, I got a bunch of books, like, you know, the, the Idiot's Guide. Yeah. The Idiot's Guide to, like, Internets, like, the Dummy's Guide to iPhone. So you started reading all that before you yeah, got I, out. I would, I did it like a textbook. Yeah. You know, like, I would. Almost like you're testing yourself to I understand I would, like, highlight it. stuff, and I read these books, like, 20 times for yeah. two years. So it you know, totally was. So it wasn't unfamiliar to you when you got out. I mean, I mean, but it was to a certain extent. You know, I just had a little knowledge. I was yeah. trying to school myself as much as I can. But yeah. I read all these books about the internet, iPhones, MacBooks. Yeah, you know, I even read like some video stuff because by this time I, I formed in my mind, you know, that I wanted to do films. Getting into film. When I got out, 
But um, the, the biggest thing that took me like six to nine months to figure out when I, when I got out was um, the difference between cellular and Wi-Fi. Because mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't understand bandwidth. Mm-hmm. And even like talking to people, like, like younger kids now, like they always say, like you ask them, hey man, can you do this for me? I don't have the bandwidth. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck do you mean? What does that mean? Like I didn't, I like, right. What do you mean? You this don't was have like, bandwidth. like bandwidth. I was like, what are you like? Uh, you're like on the radio. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm thinking like, what? Like you, you're uh-huh. like on a radio dial, your bandwidth. Right. Yeah. This was the only experience I had with that word. Yeah. You know, like what you're like, you know, bandwidth, like what are you you're on a CB radio? <laughs> I, I had no idea. And so it took me a long time to figure out like cellular Wi-Fi Cause I was like, well, you both, you can go on the internet, you can download stuff. Right. But you know, then I figured it took me like six to nine months to mm-hmm. figure that out. I had a kind of conversation with a lot of people and some people that even know how to use bandwidth and know cellular Wi-Fi, they still can't explain it to you. Right. Cause I was trying to figure out like, what is the difference? But you know, as I was doing journalism stuff and, and um, I was working with like pictures and files, you know, for the print stuff. And they always wanted the biggest files with the highest resolution so, you know, eventually I figured it out. It's all about the data and the size of the file. Yeah. You need Wi-Fi to download it. Some things you won't know, go unless you get yeah, bandwidth. So, so, you know, I, I figured it out. And now, you know, with all the film stuff I do, you know, like I upload stuff to Dropbox, we transfer all the time. So I understand all that stuff now. You know, but then I was like, you know, I was like, why can't I download the picture? But, you know, you... you I got you, cellular. But the thing of it is, Seth, you, you walked in pretty fast into the film world. I mean... I know that you'd been working on a lot of different things, but the time that you got out of prison and the whole world's different to you, the whole world has changed. It wasn't very long before you're in a situation where uh, you're producing, directing and, and making white boy that, you know, what is I just it? wrote, I just wrote, wrote and produced that. Sean Reckless director. Yeah. Director. So and the, it was his studio transition studio, transition studio. So, in that whole series of things, though, that what was that? It like a two-year two span. So you got out in two thousand fifteen. That was probably like that was like that happened like uh, yeah within eighteen months. Two How crazy years. did that seem? Um, well, when I got out, I knew I wanted to do film, and, and and another it's a it's another like I have a lot of these things that um. For some things I have really good timing, for some things I have yeah. bad timing. But I'm just like a timing guy, you know. If you're it's relentless. Good or bad, like if it's good or bad, <laughs> you're relentless. You, you know, just like, keep going. Yeah, but um, you know, I, I always have good timing, but like sometimes I have real bad timing. But I'm one of those people. I'm on timing. I'm always in this stream angle. I don't know whatever it is about me. I'm like a lightning rod for that. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I get out. 2015, like making a murder is like blowing up on Netflix, mm-hmm. putting the true crime genre on yeah. the map. I'm like a true crime journalist. Yeah. You know, I'm like a true crime author. So, you know, all these different people are got different stuff in projection productions and, and they're hitting me up. They want me to be like a talking head on their stuff. So I did that maybe like three or four times and I kind of started seeing like, you know, the setup, you know, just like you would come in here, you want to do a podcast, you see your yeah. podcast set up. You mm-hmm. know, what's this? What's that? Mm-hmm. What kind of, you know, equipment you got? What brands? Mm-hmm. You know, how does this work? So I'm asking these questions as I'm going on these documentary sets where they interview me. And so I'm kind of figuring out, I'm like, you know, within two years, I'm like, man, I can do this. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not that hard, you know, because, you know, when you first see film, you think like cameras, like it's, you know, it's so expensive, you know, so much technical ability. Yeah, it seems overwhelming. You know, so it, it's like, man, can I do this? I'm just a writer. You know, I knew how to tell a story, but I didn't know how to make, you know, a documentary or film per se, even though I had taken classes about it and I wrote some scripts and stuff like that. So, um, I, but I was doing 
a lot of times for my journalism, for Vice and the other places I was writing for, obviously I'm concentrating on true crime stuff, but a lot of times I'm picking people that not only am I interested in what they're doing, but I'm trying to form a relationship with mm -hmm. them, right? So, you know, sometimes people like you, sometimes they don't. So, you know, I keep meeting these different directors, interviewing them, you know, producers, whatever, showrunners, and I'm interviewing and I'm telling them about my story and I'm telling them about my ideas. And some are interested and some are like, well, whatever, fuck off. Mm -hmm. You know, just do the article, see you later. And, um, but I'm always probing, you know, trying to network, you know, trying to get those contacts. And, um, and like I would pick and choose like what I wanted to cover based on who the person was and if I thought I could form a relationship with them to get my goals and my agenda off. So um, finally I, I interviewed Sean Reck. He had did this movie, his first feature doc. Sean Reck cut his teeth. He did like 200 Crime Stopper shows for uh, all, the, all the networks. He won like nine regional Emmys in Ohio. So that and was his world. Yeah, he was a very accomplished filmmaker, and he did his first feature. It was called A Murder in the Park, and it was on Showtime. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed him for Vice. But for whatever reason, Vice ended up not even running it. You know, they didn't even run it. So, you know, I like it didn't even happen, the, the, the interview we did. So I didn't even get him the publicity that I was. But once he kind of found my backstory out. That was of interest to interested. him. Yeah so, yeah, so and he was looking for his next documentary at that yeah. time. So, um you know, off the success of a murder in the park. And so he actually flew me. He flew me to Cleveland. And I pitched him, and I pitched him stuff. And um, originally we were going to do this thing, you know, uh, about prison, about the prison industrial complex, you know, where how, uh, you know, they form all these prisons, and then they they sub they form all these support businesses around the prisons. Yeah, like cottage industries. Yeah. And a lot of times the people that own these are – somehow related to the sure. senator or representative who passed the bill to get the prison there. Yeah. So eventually we we're going to do something like this. Kinda Which is also at, interesting. Yeah, kind of look at prison yeah. profiteers. Yeah. And, you know, he knew I had a lot of people we can interview, and we we're going to tell their story why kind of – because that's what he likes to do stuff. He likes to expose stuff, you know, kind of like me. That's kind of mm -hmm. like his, his genre. And then uh, we're talking, and um, I and I mentioned the white boy Rick story because I – I uh, you know, I'd written about Rick's case while I was in for, like, uh, I, I did this one article for The Fix, like, in 2012 that, like, went viral covering his case. You know, and this is another thing. Like, I had no idea what viral meant till I got out. <laughs> I, had, I had friends that were getting yeah. out before me yeah. and knew about my writing. And yeah. when they got, they were calling, you know, I'd call them, and they'd be like, dude, you don't even know how big your stuff is out That's here. It's like, viral. You, like, you have no idea how big your stuff is out here. Mm -hmm. You know, because I didn't. You know, I don't, I'm not even on the Internet. I'm getting printouts from the Internet. Right. You know, in, in snail mail. So I meet Sean, and um, it was probably like the fourth thing I pitched him, the white boy Rick yeah. story, you know, because I did a piece for Vice News. I had done some stuff for Vice, and I had done this stuff for The Fix. You know, and, and I'd been kind of championing his cause. You know, not like I was the only one. There were other writers, too. And I had a form of relationship with him through the mail that I started in 2005. So I'd been writing Rick for a while, years, 10 yeah. years by this time. And I first got interested in him when I was doing my Street Legends series because when I was in Beckley and Gilmer, West Virginia, there was a whole bunch of Detroit dudes, and I was always hearing like about they this, knew the whole story. Yeah, this young uh, white kid, fourteen, you know, that supposedly FBI was, informant, yeah, was running the Black Underworld, and I felt a lot of parallels. With sure, because we both got busted young. Yeah, you know, even though we had different circumstances, we both did a lot of time. Mm -hmm. You know, and then like you know, he was like in the Black Underworld in the streets. But, you know, I, I played basketball, and I like hip-hop, so I hung around with a lot of black dudes, and I wrote books about black yeah. drug lords. Yeah. So there was, like, this There's kind of connection. affinity. Yeah, so, um, 
so I pitched Sean Reck the story, and this was like they had they had just taught they they had just like uh you know went into production or announced the White Boy Rick with Matthew McConaughey movie. Mm-hmm. So he knew this. So like he was like he was like oh that's that's a sexy story because mm-hmm. you know in, in his eyes he's seeing like with the Hollywood movie that's like free promotion cause, sure because you because know, a lot of these documentary productions are only a couple hundred thousand dollars whereas that hollywood movie probably their marketing budget was like one one million dollars so you know he's seeing like man this is something you know we might be able to hit on yeah piggyback yeah so we go into promotion with that um and and i kind of make a deal with them you know i i make a deal with them i say look uh you know I'm, i'm gonna give you access to all this stuff you know you can base it you know off my writing all these articles i've done but I said, you know, I want you to mentor me. I want you to train me. I want you to fly me into the shoots. I want to, you know, want to learn. Sit in the director's chair. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to learn to be a director. I want to learn the business. I love that. You know, and so, um, and so, yeah. And, and he he accepted my offer. Because you could have easily have not have done that. You you learned that as a and made that a training ground for yourself, Seth. And I think that's what's interesting about you is you you you've been in some real shitty situations and you've been able. Uh, tenacious, relentless, whatever you want to wrap your arms around that, but you've made your situation work for you, which I think is really, you know, we always try to say, you know, on this program, nightmare success is, you know, what happens when you're, when you, when your worst fear becomes your reality, what do you do? How do you adapt? You adapted and you also found an, a whole passion for yourself that and clearly at, at a young age, I can tell by everything I read about you, you were smart. You, you ended up in an, in an area where you, you got caught. But then when you get into prison, you get your master's degree. You start writing all these books and doing all these things. I'm curious from the journey you're at, and you're, you're just a few years younger than me. I'm 55. What do you think your biggest takeaway is from all this that you've been through? Yeah, my, my biggest takeaway is, um, I mean, if you want something, you got to go after it, man. Yeah. Nobody's going to give you anything. Nobody's going to, you know, I, I tell people all the time, people hit me up on social media all the time, and they, like, have an idea, and they're like, put me on. Yeah. I'm like, nobody's going to put you on, man. you got to put yourself on. Right. You know, you, you got you to gotta be uh, proactive, not reactive. You know, if and, and everybody, sometimes you find yourself in life becoming reactive, but when you become reactive, you're losing. Exactly. You have to be proactive. You have to be ahead of the game. You have to see things before they happen. You have to be on that cutting edge. And sometimes, you know, I feel like I've been on that cutting edge, you know, a lot in life, you know, and sometimes I was on the cutting edge of the cannabis and psychedelic game, but I Mm -hmm. was way too soon. So I had to pay a hefty price. But, you know, other things, you know, like, like the true crime, you know, docs, like I came out, I was kind of on that cutting edge. Good timing. And now I feel like, uh, you know, as a speaker, as a, as a personality, as an influencer, I'm kind of uh, that cutting edge, like in, in the cannabis and, and psychedelic world, mm-hmm. you know, cause there's a lot of people in this world, you know, they might be CEOs, they might be part of these big companies, you know, or they might be this or that, but they, there's no substance. You know, I got the whole backstory. This is my culture. That's what I love about your story though, is that you, you don't wait for things. You do take action. And even if you don't know what it is and it's not something you've done before, you still step into it and learn it. Uh, even to the point where you were, you were getting the books before you got out to see how the, how's everything work? You know, don't, not a lot of people do that, but taking action and, and, and like you said, being, don't be reactive. Uh, 
go after it, step into it. That's, that's, that's good. That's a good tip because I think so many people have talent. They, they have this, whatever that's a passion of theirs, but they stand on the sidelines and watch everybody else play the game. You just stepped into the game and said, you, I'm in. I, I tell people all the time, and, and this is what I told myself before I got out, because I, I saw people get out, and, you know, I saw people come back, or I, I saw them, you know, just get stuck in life. And, and these were dudes that they, they had dreams, they had goals, they wanted to do things, because me and my friends would sit around and we would share all this stuff, you know, as we got out, you know. And I had longer, so I had to do a lot more time. But I saw people got out that, you know, I really believed in, and, you know, real life would get in the way. You know, be it, be it drugs, yep. be it kids. You know, be it relationships, yeah. you know, be it, you know, getting back in trouble, violating, come back to prison, mm-hmm. you know, be it finances, be it bills. Mm-hmm. And, and I told myself, you know, before I got out, I'm like, you know, I want to become a filmmaker. Yep. You know, I, I you know, eventually, you know, I, I mean, my, my, my ultimate goal is, you know, I want, I want to be like a showrunner for a series and I, I want to do like, you know, Hollywood movies, like mm-hmm. narratives, you know, fictional things. Yeah. You know, my, my dream would actually to be like, do some Marvel movies as yep. a writer director. You know, so I, I think I'm setting myself up. And you well do for comic that. strip stuff with what was it called Grind? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I love comics. Yeah. So, but my whole thing was before I got out, I was like, I'm not going to let real life get in my way. Yeah, a lot stay of people, focused. They let real life gets in their way, and, and you can get bogged down, man. You can, and and you know, like I say, I, I've got bogged down. I've got bogged down with bills. I've got bogged sure. down with finances. everybody does. I've got bogged down with relationships. But, you know, and everybody goes into shells sometimes. You know, I feel like I'm coming out of this show that I've been in like the last four or five months where I've kind of been bogged down with yeah. stuff. And it's, it's kind of been affecting every, everything I've done. But I feel like I'm at the tail end of that. And, and, and I'm ready to go, man. I'm ready to go back in beast mode, you know. And um, a lot of times in my life. <laughs> I like life, that, beast mode. Yeah, a lot of times in my life, you know, I, I get bogged down. But I don't let my stuff stay bogged down. I might get bogged down three months, six months, nine months. But I always bounce, bounce. back. And, well, you and know why I, believe- I think that is, though, Seth, is you, you have something you're grabbing for. You, you have something that's, that's a goal of yours, and you, you are wired away to where you take action on it. Even if you get sidetracked, you get back on the track. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, get knocked down seven times, get up eight. The reason you get up eight times is because you have a reason to get up. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I see that in your, your life story is you get knocked down, but you don't stay down. You, you get knocked down, you figure out, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to figure out, you know, how to, how to continue to make it what I'm going to make. I think it's a, it's a fascinating, inspiring story because for most people who would have been in your position, Seth, uh, it would have put a lot of people in a fetal position. And it could have institutionalized you in that world. You could have come out and never have been anything. And, and what you did is you grew in that world. You became more of who you were internally and you used that passion when you got out. And I, God knows what you're going to do here in the next five years, but it's going to be exciting to watch. Um, Seth, man, I really appreciate you being on here today. It's just a cool story and sharing it with everybody. Uh, for, and, and for people who want to find your stuff, is gorillaconvict.com the best place to go? I mean, because it's got, yeah, every, it's yeah, got everything my, yeah, there. that's my website, yeah. I got a YouTube channel, too, under Seth How, What's that? Yeah, it's under my name, Seth Ferrante. Seth, okay. Yeah, and then um, I got social media. It's actually deactivated, but I'll, I'll be putting it back up. <laughs> I just take a break from social media sometimes. Yeah. I get so much uh, – I don't know. I found, too, like the um, 
you know, the, the, the bigger I get or the bigger following I get, the, the, the negative comments, I get more negative comments. Oh, yeah. And I just, you know, I, I, I don't like that. I take that. You know, I try not to read it. Everybody yeah. says don't read it. But, you know, it's it just, you know, because I, I can't believe because I'm trying to do so much and I feel like I've come so far. And then, like, somebody, you know, like, people say stupid just stuff. Just a cheap like, shot. Yeah, just like like my college courses. Like, oh, like, I wish I wanted to went to prison and they could fund my college. Yeah. My master's degree. But my parents paid for that. It's just, it's all based on falsities and then. You know, I get stuff like just because I write about prison stuff or I write about drug lords and, and people say, like, I'm a snitch. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, the people are telling me their stories. I'm exactly. Not, you know, that's what I was going to say. This is not a fiction story. This uh, is nonfiction. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, but it's just, you know, but you know what? That's the cool thing about you, Seth, is that is for a, a lot of people, especially in the world we live in now, that social media stuff really eats people up and you've got to be strong and stay strong with it to to not. um to let it get you. And, yeah. and I think, you know, what you're doing and how you're doing it, man, stay, stay relentless, stay after, because that's. Yeah, I just that. use it. I use it for promotion, but sometimes I just deactivate. Yeah. I just don't feel like, dealing I get with it. it, you know, but then like, you know, as soon as I notch nightlife's coming out soon. So it's as soon time as to I get launch on. that, yeah, yeah I'll, promote. Be, I'll be cranking it up for everybody out there. Um, and I've also got a book. It's called nightmare success, loyalty, loyalty, betrayal, life behind bars. Uh, finally breaking free. Uh, you know, everybody, I love the, uh, the likes, comments. Um, if you want to find me at BrentCassie.com, I'm trying to build up the uh, Apple reviews. So go there, give me a review. It helps uh, promote the show. As I used to say to uh, everybody I was writing from, from prison, stay strong and I'll do the same. Nightmare success in and out. Seth, thanks today. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you.